All right, and welcome to Etc. Etc. I'm your host, Aug Stone. A sad week this week as I woke up on Wednesday to the news that Anita Lane had passed away. Oh man, I, I'd had her and Barry Adamson's version of These Boots Are Made For Walking stuck in my head for like a week before that. Probably with good reason. And today's guest and I talk about Barry Adamson, what a great album Oedipus Schmedipus is. But I've been like reminiscing like back in 1998 on that fateful trip to Europe where that stranger had told me that Nick Cave owned a bar in Berlin and inspired that crazy story. I had been reading Ian Johnston's Bad Seed biography at the time, and Anita just seemed like such a powerful muse and creator in her own right. Then I got to London on that trip and I found her The World's a Girl EP at the Rough Trade Shop on Talbot Road. And that was my introduction to the world of Serge Gainsbourg, actually. Her and Nick's cover of Je Tem. So I sought out her Dirty Pearl album and then a couple years later, my band at the time, Lifestyle, we were going up to do some Canadian dates and Sex O'Clock had just come out. So I bought it at a record store in Buffalo, New York and we were pretty fascinated by it, you know, driving around listening to it. And Mute is reissuing that album later this year, and I was hoping to talk to her about it on this podcast, which just would have been great. Her vocals on Mick Harvey's version of Gainsbourg's Overseas Telegram are my definition of gorgeous. So yeah, a sad week, but it's been great seeing online just like how much she affected so many people. A weird transition this, but in Young Southpaw news, I've been pretty pleased with the past two episodes of the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast, which you can find at youngsouthpaw.com and all the podcast places. Last week's talks about a connection between Beverly Hills 90210 and Fugazi. I had a lot of fun writing that one. And this week's episode was something that I wrote last year. Then when Eddie Van Halen died, I put it aside for a while But I really like the ideas a lot because the whole concept is just so mind-blowing to me that, you know, there's there's that story that Gene Simmons was trying to get Eddie to join Kiss, and this would have been still in the 1970s when they were still wearing makeup. So, like, what would Eddie's makeup have been? One of the most important questions of the 20th century. Hit me up with any thoughts you have on it. Here's a clip from the episode. I mean, I love it. Well, I mean... I mean, I don't want to just jump on the KISS bandwagon there. You know, I mean, I like it loud. I like it sounding good. It sounds good and it's loud. Well, then, I mean, yeah. But I'm not just going to do everything KISS tells me to, you know. Like if KISS jumped off a bridge, you know, I mean, would I? Well, I mean, probably be a big reward for saving their lives, you know. I mean, of course, I wouldn't even be doing it for the money. But I also don't know how I would catch all four of them and then save myself and all of us. I mean, I don't fly. Gene's the one with the bat wings, you know? But then, like, even then it would be difficult, you know? I mean, no disrespect, but I'm not even sure the two of us could save the other three and ourselves, you know, much as I would like to. I mean, we'd have to jettison the platform boots, first of all. I mean, maybe the Red Hot Chili Peppers would already be there waiting for them, you know? Under the bridge! Red Hot Chili Peppers, also hot, you know? By definition. I wonder if they ever got into it, you know? Trying to decide who was the hottest band in the world. I mean, I I hope they don't come to blows about it. I mean, Kiss were even hot in the shade, you know? Though you would imagine the area under the bridge also being in the shade. The shadows cast from the structure itself. And like 7,800 degrees Fahrenheit is pretty hot too, you know, bringing Jovi into this. Living on a prayer, but heaven's on fire, you know. And Kiss were also hotter than hell, woo! I mean, Van Halen were literally on fire on that first record, you know. 
stayed so all the way through Hot for Teacher, you know, on that run of the first six albums. I mean, Roth opening for Kiss is very interesting in another way in that Gene produced their Zero demos, you know, back in 1976, Year of the Fire Dragon, bringing it back to hot stuff. I don't think Donna Summer was actually involved. I mean, though that would have been pretty rad. But like early on, you know, before VH were signed, Gene kind of got them going and he had... And this has always been a holy grail of mine. He had Alex and Eddie play on three Kiss demos. Christine 16, Tunnel of Love, and Got Love for Sale. I mean, I would love to hear these, man, you know. Favorite bands of my youth all coming together like that. They were eventually released on Gene Simmons' vault, you know, but that's like $2,500. Or you can pay like 50 grand and he'll come to your house and deliver it. Imagine if he came to your house and then jumped off the nearest bridge and expected you to save him. And you had to pay $50,000 for the privilege? Whew. I'm glad that, that no one has reported that happening. If you like that and want to hear more, I mean, the full episode is almost 15 minutes long. There's there's lots of conjecture about what Eddie's makeup might have been, as well as other guitarists from the era. And that's all over at the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast. It's episode number 59, so there's lots of stories like this to entertain you. Which brings us to today's guest, Mr. Stephen Coates of The Real Tuesday Weld. He's written a few of my favorite songs of all time. It's always a pleasure to catch up with him. In fact, when I first started writing about music back in 2011, I was writing for God is in the TV zine. And Bill, who runs that, was very cool about letting me interview whoever I wanted to. So I emailed Stephen and we met up at the Royal Festival Hall in London. I remember my old signature last question was always, if you had stolen a space shuttle and were flying it directly into the sun, what would you want to be listening to? And Stephen's answer was Opportunity for Two by Van Dyke Parks, which I'd never heard before. So I went home and listened and, oh man, what a tune. It's impossible to be in a bad mood or sad with that one playing. Perfect for the journey into the fires of the sun. I was pretty bummed out to get the email that the real Tuesday Weld were calling it a day, but Stephen reassured me that it's a good thing. And with three albums worth of new music, plus bonus discs, it's pretty exciting. I've seen them a bunch of times over the years, always in cool, unique settings in both London and the States. So we went over their long and interesting career, and well, let's get to it. All right. We're here today with Mr. Stephen Coates. How you doing? Excellent. Great to see you, man. You too, man. It's been a while. Well, we met, the last time I can remember meeting you was in the, in the Crypt Cafe under St. Martin's in London. About um, three years, is it? Three years ago? Maybe I think so. Last time I was in London, 2017. Yeah. So a lot's happened since then. Um, yeah, this, were... thing, this thing called COVID has happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's that. <laughs> but there's also, you've decided to bring the real Tuesday well to an end. Oh, yeah, there's that as well. Yeah. Um, uh, that's right. Yeah. For, well, you know, I think it would have actually happened um, probably at least a year ago. And if not a bit longer, if it hadn't been for COVID, I've been planning it for a while, actually. And um, just that because we were going to do it with a series of releases um, on vinyl as well, that all you know went into kind of chaos because of COVID and all that sort of stuff. And I, I think we're all, you know, still hoping it, when it started that it was going to be over in a couple of months, right? So we kept kind of putting stuff off, you know, uh, thinking, oh, I'll be fine by, you know, fine by June, fine by August. And then it's like, no. So we've, we, so it's now started, yes, the, <clears throat> the final, the, the, the decline and fall of the Real Tuesday World. It's a good title. <laughs> so why? Right. So the short answer is it's time. And um, what does that mean? I mean, <clears throat> it's been 20 years, Orc, and I feel that that's a nice round number. And by the time I'm done, I've done 10 albums, right? And that actually feels like plenty 
Um, and also, so there's there's a sort of numerical thing going on, but also a kind of astrological thing in the sense that I think that, the, you know, the, the time's right according to the stars. And there's an aesthetic thing going on, which is that everything has to end in some way, you know. And I was thinking about this with bands and stuff, you know, bands that you and I know and love. And I was thinking, is, is that band still going? Um or, you know, sometimes they break up acrimoniously and you know that they've, it's ended and sometimes somebody dies, right? So it's kind of over. But quite often what happens is, is that they just don't put anything else out. And then after a certain amount of time, you kind of assume that they're, they're gone. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want that for the Real Tuesday world because it's been so important to me. It's been such a big important part of my life that I actually, I wanted to kind of make a deliberate aesthetic end to it and you know, the, this is it, and end it, end it in the kind of as elegant a way as I could, rather than leave it to chance, you know. So you have you've some plans to end it in an elegant way. There's a series of releases coming up. Yeah, so what happened is, is that I've not actually put an album out for nine years, um, a full album. We've done lots of releasing of EPs and obviously working on films and various collaborations and other, other stuff has come out in that time. Um, and obviously I've been involved in a lot of other, and projects as well but I've always you know like you I'm always writing and recording so along the way it was recording and writing stuff and and then it went into a sort of burst of that in the last couple of years so built up quite a bit of stuff and then you know the idea is to finish Real Tuesday World with three full albums and uh, three bonus albums which is quite a lot of material. And, I, and you know, at first what I wanted to do was to put out a triple album, you know, like a prog, prog rock band from the 70s. Um, and everybody said to me, that's commercial suicide, to which I said, and? Uh, <laughs> what's new? It's not like, <laughs> it's not, you know. But actually I think it was more to the point that that's too big a meal <laughs> for most people. You know that actually, you know, a triple albums a bit, a bit much, and particularly these days, you know, and it's we just can't consume. We don't people don't consume things in that way. So it it made more sense anyway to do it, space it over eighteen months. Yeah. Are there any triple albums you like? No. Yeah, I was thinking about this the other day. Like the Clash, like London Calling. I think stylistically they had a lot going on. You know, various musical styles and then they did the triple album of Sandinista which is just all over the place and people like it but I've never been able to get into it it is just too much <laughs> well nearly always I mean Sandinista is a classic great example because it's actually a brilliant single album mm. isn't it you know it's a great single album isn't it and I think with often with triple albums I don't actually know that many triple albums <laughs> all, all, all Things Must Pass you know George Harrison triple album great single album you know was it triple? I think it was triple, yeah. Yeah, it's a triple. Yeah. Okay. I mean, triple vinyl, which of course these days probably fit on two, two CDs or something. But um, but uh, but yeah, you know, most of those ones they would make great single albums and you know maybe good double albums when there's just too much stuff, isn't there? And it's just too much to listen to. I think it's lots of great double albums, of course. Yes, but yeah, no, definitely as far as being able to digest it, like like where you're going with three albums released over mm. a period gives the listener time to appreciate everything going on whereas it would just be lost otherwise i think that's right isn't it It would just be lost it's too much for everybody and it get a bit lost the other thing is is that as you know you know with us is that every album has been like a kind of um collage of sounds and styles and all sorts of stuff and what i thought this time was that to separate it out a little bit so the first album which is blood which is coming out next month that's at the noir end of what we do, sort of jazz, noir, dark cabaret end. And then um, Dreams, which will be the end of this year, is more of the kind of, I'm he- hesitant to use the word pop, but, you know, that kind of more cinematic sort of songs. You have to hesitate um, with me. That sounds great. Actually, yeah, you're, you're a, of course you're a pop junkie. But um, I, it's just that these days pop means something quite different, <laughs> different doesn't it? But pop confectionery, uh, electronic confectionery, that's probably the best way to describe it. Um, dream old dream songs, as it were, and then finish off next year with with Bone, which is is kind of full circle because it goes back to that kind of nineteen thirties forties 
um, influences. So I thought I'd finish off with that, which would take it full circle. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I wanted to ask you before we got into the newer stuff. I mean, you've had such a varied and interesting career with, you know, albums that are companions to novels, like the live soundtrack to surrealist film, um, a LucasAid advert. <laughs> 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 Looking back, like what were what do you immediately think of as like the highlights or the milestones of the band? Well, oh God, I'll tell you what, it's interesting you mentioned that about the um, live soundtrack to Dreams That Money Can Buy, the Surrealist film. I think performing that live at the Tate Modern back in 2000 and whenever it was, 10 or something, I can't remember Five. what it was now. I was earlier, that was it. Yeah, a long time ago. Um, that was that was definitely a peak um, because it was such a ambitious thing to pull off and also to do it in that huge space the turbine hall you know um in front of a you know a 2000 people or whatever i can't remember how many people were there but it was it was that was a great thing but you know that's that was a highlight but there's been many many highlights what's been really interesting is, is that i did an email out to our list last week saying you know, this is the end. And got a lot of people, loads of people wrote back. And it was quite moving to read those responses. And also quite funny, because lots of people said, I remember seeing you, you know, in San Francisco in this year, or, you know, uh, Berlin, or, or all over this all over the world. And, and I thought, God, that's amazing, you know, and, and reminded me of those shows. And I'm sure it's the same for you. There's like, lots of little peaks, aren't there? You know, and... Um, collaborations with people and first time we went to Russia that was pretty amazing you know just the thought of actually going to Russia you know yeah um and and yeah so I think the Tate show was a definite standout but there's been lots of wonderful things happened along the way I feel amazingly grateful org and appreciative to that I ever got the chance to do any of it excellent how did it all come? To, how did the band come together? Because I, I think about it like I, I can't name another band with a clarinet player, and that is like one thing that I've always loved about you guys. Mm. I, I had heard you before, but the first time I ever saw you was uh, I think the Chick Factor Festival at Bush Hall in mm. two thousand three, and just the procession into the venue led by you know this lovely clarinet, and then the show. It was this very sort of ethereal experience. Yeah, right. So um, what happened was is that I'd made two albums before I played a live show. And uh, after when the second one was coming out, um, Lucifer, I Lucifer, which is the soundtrack to Glenn's book, I Lucifer, you know, the, the record company and stuff was saying, you've got to do something live, um, you know, which I understand from their point of view, it's very difficult to kind of promote and market somebody without events and things happening, you know. So um, I was very reluctant. I was quite frightened of it. I didn't know how to do it. You know, I was a kind of classic somebody who works on their own mainly, you know, and um, with sort of wonky gear and, and you know, I'm not an actual player. So uh, I didn't know how to do it and rather reluctantly agreed to do one show at the Horse Hospital, which is, I don't know if you know that place yeah. in central London. Wonderful old um, actual horse hospital from 19th century, which is kind of an alternative art centre, you know. Yeah, they put on lots of cool events, very, very unique events. Yeah, and so what we agreed was is that we'll do an event there. We won't, it won't be a gig, it'll be Glenn will read from I Lucifer, we'll show a couple of animations that are already done, Bath Time and Clerkenwell, and we'll, I'll play three songs. And, and I'm, you know, managed to learn three of my own songs. <laughs> And, uh, and I had to get uh, Jack in, who plays the clarinet, who's an old friend of mine, and, um, and Clive Painter, who's a guitarist. Uh, no, actually, he was on he was, he was, did the desk. Another friend of mine in guitar, and it was just like that, so we just did that, and that was meant to be it. Um, so we played these three songs, and Glenn read, and we showed the films, and after the show, this guy came up to me and said, um, oh, I really enjoyed that, you know, would you come and play in my club? And I said, mm, no thanks for the offer, but actually this is it, I'm done. And um, and he was like, oh, come on, you know, come on, you can play. And I said, well, where's your club? And he said, uh, Athens. So I was like, actually, that sounds all right. Yeah. Gonna, they're going to pay us to go to Athens to play a club. And I said, the thing is, I haven't got any songs. And he said, well, just, you know, learn a few more. So we did. So we so we learned a few more songs, but not, not a full set. 
went out uh, there um, with a couple of other bands and um, played in his club in Athens. I think he played two shows, actually. And when I came back, I got an email, um, I think from Gail, from Chick Factor, and she said, will you come to New York and play a show? So that's, well, that's the way it went. Horse Hospital, Athens, New York. Excellent. <laughs> so that's how the band came together. It was all by accident as a live band because each time I was thinking obviously these people very sweet people are spending their money because they like the music you know and they're, they're going to go the, the whole nine yards to actually put on a show we've got to put on a show so it goaded me into learning uh, you know my own songs and also how to perform them and uh, you know is that when we perform them live they can sound quite different than on the record and sometimes that's been a problem for people they've been like I didn't sound like the record but my view on it is that, first of all, didn't know how to make it sound like the record. And secondly, what's the point, really? You know what I mean? I mean, I could just press play on a sampler and sing over yeah. the top. But it was like, so what? So we made it into this more theatrical show and reinterpreted the songs. And so when you saw, by the time you saw us at Bush Hall, uh, that's what had happened. It's that it had evolved into a kind of, um, you know, a different live thing, a proper proper band. I like that you, you did that. I mean, you would record different versions as well and i like you weren't tied to any you know one definitive thing in the song i've really i don't know i enjoy that like uh, you know there's diff, tempo wise there's two different versions of someday and actually the vocal mm. was very different and pearly gates has different versions mm. um which did you have any sort of thought behind this or were you just like oh let's go here with it i i so i went to art school right so i didn't um and i got into music in a way by making stuff which I thought was like an art project, if you see what I mean. So, and uh, and I and it, you know, starting off with a with a sampler and a and a record player and a tape machine actually. So, um, I never thought about it, uh, and I was very fortunate meeting Tracy Dreamy Records and all that stuff, and sort of gradually falling into it. So, I never had the this idea that you know there's a way, there was a way to do things so for me everything every song felt like it was work in progress and still does you know mm. so it's like it never really it just that at some point you have to put something out but we carried on sort of changing songs after that and uh, still do so they're never really finished are these songs that's what i think mm. um well i suppose you know nobody's going to say that say um Good Vibrations isn't finished. <laughs> it's finished. It's finished. It's a perfect song. But I mean, <laughs> I like the idea that they kind of keep they keep growing and sort of changing, you know. And uh, you resample them or you kind of perform them differently or with a different singer or something. And I've been really fortunate, always, you know, because things I've been able to work with people who can sing, um, unlike myself. So, um, you know, I'm in the Gansborg school of vocalizing rather than a singer, but I've been able to write songs for. People, you know, people, mainly women, actually, who are great singers. And, um, you know, that course completely transforms a song. You know, mm. um, if you write it as a guy, uh, particularly guys, kind of Gansburg style, you know, <clears throat> guy, and then you get a sort of proper torch singer in to sing it, it just completely transforms it. And that's exciting. Yeah. Are you, are you a big Gansburg fan? Massive. Yeah. I, I love yeah, massive. Yeah, big big guns with I'll tell you, I'm a big Paddy McLoon fan as well, right? From uh, Paddy McLoon from Prefab Sprout. Oh, okay. Um, he's one of the greatest, I think, one of the great British songwriters. But I, he said something which is that which I always thought was true is that he said he's a great songwriter. He said that he'd be happy for just for other people to sing his songs. He wasn't bothered about singing them himself. And I, I, that's the way I feel. It's always very nice. People say, "Oh, I love you know, love your voice," and I would sing it. But from my own personal point of view, I'd be happy if if everything was sung by somebody else. Hmm. All right. And Gansberg was a bit like that. I mean, he did do his own stuff, but I mean, he, you know, he worked with a lot of lot of women, didn't he? And that was that was my model. It's a good model to have, <laughs> especially with the beautiful women like he worked with: <laughs> Jane Birkin, Bridget Bardo, Juliet Greco. Yeah, <laughs> France guy. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. So I, before we get to the new stuff, I wanted to ask you sort of like a bit of a retrospective, ask you about some of my favorite Real Tuesday mm -hmm. World songs, mm -hmm. comments on them mm -hmm. from this perspective. Now, The Ugly and the Beautiful was my first favorite. That made a, that's made a lot of mixed CDs over the years. Tell me about that one. 
Right. So, um, you mean tell you in how did it get written or what it means or what are your thoughts on it now? Well, that's a really good question, or because I never listen to my old stuff ever, and uh, very occasionally you hear it in some of the context, and I, I now associate that song with Moscow because it got playlisted in Russia, and it's still on a playlist, and so I, I only ever hear it when I'm driving around in Moscow and somebody puts the radio on, <laughs> and it's really weird. And I and, and, my, and I, I was in a I was at a flea market a couple of years ago in in in. Moscow and we were walking around with my Dasha, my Russian friend who's a translator and we were at this stall poking around you know stuff and the guy had a radio on and the ugly and the beautiful came on and it was a very weird moment because she turned to the guy and said that's him <laughs> poison of the radio and actually it was one of those it was one of the very few moments when I actually sort of thought oh I felt, you know what I mean? I thought, oh, I did that. But I thought about you, but because it's quite a long time ago now, that song, is that I can't remember writing it and I can't remember the person who wrote it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like I can't remember who I was when I wrote it. And I, I certainly can't remember sitting on the edge of my bed sort of plucking it. And I don't know how it, how it happened. Wow. It's really, really odd. Yeah. I wasn't expecting that as the comment, but <laughs> excellent stuff. But I, I, it's really nice to hear it now. You know, I think, oh, I'm really pleased. That, yeah, but I, I, it's a good song. I like it, yeah. Uh, Dreaming of You, one of my favorites, and especially the version that's on the that comes with a smile compilation. Um, is that with Sibeli? Sibeli singing it, or is it me? You're singing it. Right. Uh, it's, it's different than what you released, because I saw when you did, I think, the BFI. You mm -hmm. do something there, and I love that song. And then before you put it out, the only way to get it was uh, that comes with the smile compilation. Yeah, so that song is the final uh, closing piece from Dreams that Money Can Buy, the alternative soundtrack to that surrealist film, which is mainly instrumental, but there are a couple of songs in it, and it's the final one. And um, in a way, it's actually. Uh, because the whole the whole film is about dreams and dreaming, and um, I was deep into that stuff at the time. Not just the film, but I was deep into reading Young and um, you know, guided by dreams and stuff. So um, it's it was a song about um, trying to capture that sense of falling. You know, when you have a, when you have a when when you and you're in a dream and you feel like you're falling, and then you know, comparing that to sort of falling in love or out of love. Um, and then Sibeli sang it, actually, Brazilian singer, which is exquisite. And um, yeah, so it, that, that feels like part of that time, you know, that particular time. Do, have you ever dreamed a song? Well, I, yes, actually, I have dreamed a song. And a bit like, unfortunately, unlike Paul McCartney, who famously dreamt uh, yesterday, yesterday <laughs> um, I've had that dreamt a song and think, oh my God, you know, that's, this is so beautiful, but, but it's, I'm, I've woken up and sort of trying to find something to sing it or record it and it evaporates. Yeah, that's so have frustrating. You, have you had, have you had that? Many, many times. Most of my ideas, well, not most of them, but lots of my ideas come right before sleep. And mm. I'll, I'll love them. And it's that struggle to get out of bed or surrender into sleep, which if I do, I'll lose it forever. But if I get out of bed and then get it down as quickly as possible. Right. I'm usually very pleased with what had been coming up from the sun colleges. Yeah, so that's the time, isn't it? Just, uh, what do they call it? Hypnagogic and hypno something or other. So one's falling asleep and one's waking up, isn't it? There's, you're, 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 you're sort of deep in the subconscious and it's the time, very creative time, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's just really tricky with writing because you're a writer now as well. It's probably a bit easy because you can just grab a pen and a piece of paper, can't you? But with music when you when you're hearing a sort of beautiful symphonic you know uh good vibration standard song in your head in your dream yeah. and then you wake up it's like <laughs> you haven't got an orchestra there you can just say stop playing this or whatever you know and I, found, I found melodies have a funny way of changing very quickly even though if you're trying to like sing it to yourself mm. to remember it mm. divert from all that was in your dream yeah because it's so contextual as well isn't it you yeah. know and I mean, melodies, of course, are contextual. So, 
yeah, dang, it's not fair, is it? I know it's not fair. I mean, I suppose with yesterday, you know, he, he said that, and it's, I suppose it's just such a strong, simple thing, isn't it? And he's also he's such a good player, isn't he? He just got up and played it on the piano straight away. So. Yeah, and there's that. <laughs> yeah, didn't, didn't have to fire up his sampler. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if he has that trouble now. <laughs> Well, he's sort of annoyingly kind of prolific, isn't he? He's probably got like a ukulele next to his bed or something, hasn't he? Did a whole album on ukulele, didn't he? Recently. Uh, Lavender Hill. Right. Well, that's a that's a funny one, isn't it? I heard that the other day for the first time in absolutely ages, and um, that's probably one of the oldest Real Tuesday World songs, and it's probably even predates the Real Tuesday World. And Lavender Hill is a street in. Um, so it's actually part of a road in London, South London. And um, so that was, that's probably the, the most autobiographical song I've ever written about uh, somebody who I sh- shared some time with on, in a flat on Loving the Hill. It does seem very autobiographical, yeah, almost painfully. <laughs> painfully autobiographical, yeah. <laughs> but it's a yeah. great pop tune. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? I, heard it, I did hear that the other day and it is a bit of a pop tune isn't it yeah we never played it live for that reason that was all shy too shy to play the pop stuff live ah. also the band wouldn't let me because they're too cool <laughs> <laughs> i never kind of worked i think we did try a couple of times because it was like songs like lavender hill or a bit later on like um you know we did last last words which is the song that was in nick and nora's infinite playlist so people used to ask for that a lot but it never kind of worked live i think it's because the set was quite cabarets you know with with um uh clarinet and gretsch guitars and all that sort of stuff and then you sort of go into that it didn't never kind of quite work properly live for some reason we'd have to do a sort of do a, did have to do a kind of pop set or something i think for it to work you know mm. right i know i've the next one i was asking about i've never, i've seen this like someday Right, which version? Tell me about the song as a whole. Right, so um, that was around about the time when my dad died, I think. Uh, so that album, actually, oh no, actually, that, he died later, didn't he? Yeah, of course. Um, I'm getting all confused myself now. Right, so actually that song is from Lucifer and um, the album is based on Glenn's book and very, very broadly. And um, the themes in the book, uh, like Holy Gates and Someday, the kind of redemption songs and stuff, was because Lucifer in the book has been given this one chance to kind of like get get it right and if he you know if he, if he passes the test spending a month living in London he can then get back into paradise and um but there's this kind of doomed romantic sense all the way through the book and you kind of know that he's gonna <laughs> fucking help so uh but there was that haunted thing about you know thinking about Lucifer as um the prodigal son really who wanted to get back you know not rather than the devil the satanist you know more of a kind of like you know, somebody who's fallen big time and uh, wants to get back but can't quite bring themselves to he was do, the, very right, do the right thing. Yeah, in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, very human. Yeah, he can't quite bring himself to do the right thing. So we all, I think we're all a bit like that, aren't we? Mm. <laughs> we? You know what the right thing is all, but you can't bring yourself to do it. <laughs> yeah, so then, then we got... Um, so we recorded it and then... Martin from Tiger Lose did a version of it, um, which I just recorded him playing um, the accordion and singing it, and it's unbelievable. He turned it into a kind of war song, you know. Mm. Again, you know, felt massive privilege because he just played it like that, and, and, and his version sounds like something, you know, from the First World War or something. Yeah, it's very moving. Very moving, yeah. He put he put something into it that yeah he brought he brought something to it probably from his own life or something. And the last one I wanted to ask you about another one of my favorites is uh, "You're Gonna Live," again a big pop song. <laughs> yeah, big pop song right off um, off Werewolf and um, yeah, that's the pop song on that record and um, again sort of sticks out a bit actually. Um, what to say about that, that one? Um, I'm not sure I've got anything to say about it, in, apart from it, it's 
you know, it's it's meant to be a sort of encouragement, you know, a sort of, uh, it's meant to be a kind of, uh, hesitant to use the word anthem, but a sort of, um, you know, a kind of just invocation to sort of uh, survive, keep going and... You know, you can you you you'll be okay in the end, sort of thing. So, and it felt right to do it as a kind of pop song as well. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. Great video too. With the snails. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good video. That's Don Don Brosnan, the bass player for the World Tuesday World, made that video. It's really good. Yeah, I, I was really sad it didn't go viral. Not not just not for kind of well, obviously the personal <laughs> reasons, but it, but I thought it deserved it, and Don did a it was a crazy film and it's never gone it didn't go viral still time to go viral I mean the one that's kind of gone viral off that record of course is me and Mr Wolf I mean mean, viral I say viral I mean it's got six and a half seven million views which for the real Tuesday world is quite something you know that's pretty good for anybody I would think (laughs) well not if you're kind of I don't know you're a YouTuber making films about your cat or something but or (laughs) Katy Perry, but for Real Tuesday World, it's pretty good. I've seen more videos much more than I've ever seen videos of cats. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm in a minority, I guess. Uh, I think so, Org. Yeah, yeah. You've not been paying attention to YouTube, have you? <laughs> <laughs> so, the new record, Blood. Yeah. Uh, is a lot more electronic than I was expecting. Ah, really? Okay, right. That's interesting. Oh, that's good. You tell me more, because actually, funny, because I th- I see it as a bit more um, jazz and sort of a little bit more kind of torch songy. But um, yeah, I guess so. Okay, that's good. Yeah, yeah. it was darker than I was expecting darker. as well. Though maybe mm. I should, the title "Blood" <laughs> should have uh, <laughs> explained that more to me. But um, yeah, I mean, I just um, it, there's no big pop number on it, which usually there is one or two. Yeah, so it's it's as I said, I sort of separated for you know for better or for worse, I separated these records out into more thematically. So this one is the darker, more uh, kind of cabaret, electronic cabaret uh, end of things. Um, the kind of pop stuff, if there is, if that's the right word, is on the next one. Um, and I think there's, that was deliberate because I thought, well, I actually want to end on a kind of slightly upward uh, trajectory. So to do the, uh, it would have, this, this didn't feel like the right record to end on, you know, because it is quite dark. Um, but also it was, it was coming out of like a, watching noir films and that kind of end of stuff, which I also love, you know, Twin Peaks and uh, Angel Heart and all those kind of influences that have always been there, but actually they're all kind of concentrated together. It's funny, I thought, I thought Blood Knuckled and Dusted was a bit of a pop song in a way. I mean, a dark pop song, you know, the very first track on there was Oriana singing. Yeah, I guess for me, pop is also tied with a major key. Major keys, yeah, yeah. There's no major key on there. No. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so so this is more, yeah, it's a torch song, electronic torch song sort of record, yeah. Um, too Much Too Soon I had a really uh, come undone, Duran Duran feel, I felt. Wow, wow, well, that's, nobody said that, but that's nice. I mean, I quite like early Duran Duran, so that's all right. Um, what was the first, what was what did you say? Common? Come Undone. The, uh, oh, it's like come Undone. All oh, right, okay, I don't think, I don't actually know that track now, but. All right, that's cool. Interesting, interesting. Wow, I don't think I've ever heard that Duran Duran before, but that's a good reference. It is. Yeah, it's a great tune. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. I'll, I'm going to listen to it then. Good. Yeah. I guess I said. Oh, I mean, in a way, for me, this record is more more the probably the biggest influences are people like a bit Tom Waits, a bit Gansborg, um, Barry Adamson for sure. Um, that, that kind of end of stuff, you know. Yeah, Barry Adamson. Wow, I, I totally see that. That's what Barry, Barry Adamson's always has. yeah. Barry, Barry Adamson's always been a big influence for me because when I heard, and this is really this is going way back. I heard his album Oedipus Schmoedipus, and that's what made me want to make an album. I, I mean, I understood what songs were, but I didn't. The idea of actually. Why would you make? Because I said I came from an art, art school background, so for me the sort of song thing made sense and film soundtracks made sense because they were about the film. 
but when I heard Oedipus Medipus, I thought, oh, right, okay, you can make an album that makes sense as a whole thing. You know, it's like a whole piece. And of course, in these days, it, that matters less because we, most of us don't listen to music in that way anymore, you know what I mean, because of uh, Spotify and playlisting, which is cool, by the way. I'm not, I, just, I think that's a great thing, what's happened. But, but we don't listen to records really that way. But that's a great album, you know, it, as a whole piece. So it's always been a big influence for me, that record. Wow. I haven't heard that in a while. I'm going to go back and listen to it. Great, great album. What are it's some of your other album. favorite records? Well, that's definitely one. I'd say Melody Nelson, so Serge Gainsbourg is a sort of abiding record. Um, what else? The Angel Heart soundtrack, which is <clears throat> a mixture of artists, actually, but the, from the film Angel Heart, that's still that's still a big influence. Uh, I mean, I love that film, but I think they just still think it's one of the best modern soundtracks. Quite, quite a lot of soundtrack albums. I love like, the soundtrack to Belleville Rendezvous. That's another big one. Triple yeah. to Belleville, as I say. Um, so I think probably, the, yeah, more soundtracks than anything, actually. Than, I'm trying to think of any, any of the big albums for me. Um, well, actually, that's when Tom Waits did that, he, he did a triple album. Brawlers, what was it? Bob Brawlers? Ah, I can't remember actually what it's called. Orphans, Brawlers, and something. And it was a it was a triple album of his outtakes, right? And my God, you know, Tom Waits' outtakes kind of blow most people's takes or intakes, whatever they are, out <laughs> the water. That's that's a really great record. I love that. And that's a compilation, really, because it's just a compilation of his, you know, stuff that didn't appear on other albums. But that's wonderful. Yeah, some Tom Waits albums, I'd say, as well. Lou Valentine. And you're releasing Companion. They're not outtakes, they're sort of compilations. This uh, cassette-only thing that's coming out with Blood. Yeah, so each album's got a cassette album, bonus album that comes with it. Of, and, and some of it's older material, some of it's, some of it's been out, a little bit of it's been out in different forms, like Christmas EPs and stuff before, or appeared in some weird place. So some of it's gathered together from old releases and some of it's new. Uh, and, and it's funny calling, you call them bonus albums. I don't even know what it means. As it happens, Tapeless Memories, which is the cassette album f- f- with Blood, I actually sort of, some ways, I prefer it, you know, as a record, as a sort of thing. But um, so it's, it's, you know, and by the time, of course, it's all been through uh, Spotify and the digital stuff, or it doesn't really matter, does it, in the end? Do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. people people are going to choose their own playlists, aren't they? Yeah, and that is very true. But I guess, you know, being of a gentleman of a certain age, <laughs> <laughs> I do like to think of things as a, this is the collection of songs that the artist mm-hmm. intended. Yeah, me too. But I, I, I was thinking about this a bit recently because I, I have to say, this is my feeling on it, I think that what's happened is great for listeners, you know, the Spotification, if you like, of music is great for listeners, um, and we're all listeners. And I think that we've definitely lost something, which is that sense of the collection and you know of, of, of songs together, which has been intended by artists. But less and less artists are doing that now intentionally, you know. Mm. Anyway, and I think the sort of gains are so much, so so great compared with that loss that I don't think anybody's really going to mourn it. Maybe we mourn it, I mourn it a little bit, you know, but we, you can still choose to listen to records that way, even by Spotify, can't you? But I just think it's what most people aren't doing that anymore. And most artists aren't really listen, releasing stuff that way. They put albums out, but they put albums out because that's the only way to get stuff reviewed or to fulfill a contract that's already in place. Uh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or because, because the marketing department at the labels doesn't know how to market single songs you know and it's you still got to make you've got to make an event haven't you you know and uh, but really what's happened is, is that it's gone back to the way it was pre-1960s you know when people just released sides right yeah i guess so. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just well it's just released singles didn't they and the b-sides and, and they started, yeah. collect, started collecting them together in the late 50s and early 60s as albums yeah I mean, album culture was a very very small mm. slice of time yeah 
And I think for artists, for you know, for you, you're an artist, I'm an artist, it, it still makes sense. And you know, that's why we put this out on vinyl and cassette, because actually, you know, it, it's it's it, then it does hold it together in some way. If we'd just done a digital release, you know, all that would have made it an album is me saying it was an album. Mm. You know. And whereas actually it does it really exists as a physical artifact still. So I wanted to ask you about one more chance. Because mm. that song seems to go throughout your entire career it's on tape dust memories mm. <laughs> there's mm. many different versions i think mm. it was a live staple well tell me about that mm. right so that was actually that first appeared on um, lucifer as a kind of very slow torch song with pinky mcclure singing and you know one more chance that's the, the you know very obviously about the about the lucifer character in glenn's book he's been given one more chance you know even if he gets it right this time he's back in into heaven so that was a kind of literal uh well the most literal song that happened. but you know obviously it it phrases it as a lover speaking to an erstwhile lover as well i'm going to give you one more chance or shall i give you one more chance and then it was one of just one of those things is that when we started to play it live um it just didn't really work because it was so slow i mean you know how it is some bands and pull off really slow stuff like smog and stuff can't they but live it just was too slow so we just started speeding it up and it started speeding up then jack started playing he plays this great you know sort of clarinet line uh and then so it turned into this more kind of latin sort of uh thing and then it became a highlight of the set actually people really loved it and then we used to do this very this long kind of improvised section in the middle um, and so that's it. And then other got other people singing it, not just me. And um, Pinky sung it, obviously. And uh, and on this, uh, on Tapeless Memories, it's it's basically recorded live. And we just come back off tour. And uh, Geraldine and Gigi McEwen have been singing it for the tour, and you know delivered this amazing performance. So we thought, you know, that's got to come out as well. The bass line is killer. It's only got two notes in it. Yeah, that's all you need. Don, Don's a great bass player. No, listen, I, I always say about Don, the thing is, is that he's, the reason he's a great bass player is, is that he knows not to add too many notes in. <laughs> it's a great bass line. Yeah. I said no big pop songs, but you did Poker Face. On uh -huh. the yeah, that's a big pop song. Yeah. <laughs> tell, me, <laughs> tell me about that. I mean, you, you've been doing that for a while. I love uh, I love uh, that song. I, I love I love a lot of what Lady Gaga does, um, and I've always had a I've always had a soft spot for um, for certain kind of you know really big songs. I mean, I've done did a version of um, Stand by Your Man, which we used to play live a lot. I think so, yeah. um, obviously, did the day before you came, Abba's day before you came, which is an epic song, you know, and. Um, I've just been working on Jolene, actually. Really? Mm, I love Jolene, yeah. That is, that's, I love Dolly Parton. Mm. <laughs> I think she's fantastic. But there's something about that song that I just, just doesn't do it for me. Mm. No, no, I can see why. I mean, it's, but then I think people, it's, it's like Poker Face. People are like, what? Poker Face? It's like, but this, it's a great, I just, I don't know why. I just think it's a great song. Okay. And, and also I thought I could bring something to it as well. I like how you've always had like little rhythms or phrases that have recurred mm. throughout mm. albums and songs. The poker face is very much mm. a very distinctive Tuesday World rhythm. It mm. starts off with. Mm. Um, and I can't really think of many other artists doing that. Um, I'm not sure what my yeah. question is. But <laughs> well, I mean, I can give you the answer to it, which is that I've got, I haven't got that many ideas, so I'll keep reusing them. <laughs> But it add, like it definitely builds something. Like thematically, mm. it's it's mm. makes it much more of a cohesive whole. There's something very pleasing about that. Yeah, well, you know what? I, that, thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. And I think that it would be nice uh, when this thing is ended in two years' time. You know that it sort of feels like a kind of body of work or something. People talk about body of work, and then it would be great. If, there is. That's what I, I like the idea that there are themes running through from beginning to end. And that's why I thought I'm going to go back and make that the final record, which is the one that's the second one's finished. The third one is only half done. 
So I've still got to finish that. Um, but that's why I wanted to go full circle with it. And so that'll be much more like that, I think. Okay, great. Mm. Yeah, because even in You're Gonna Live, there's the little... Uh, yeah, <laughs> same sample. <laughs> hey, listen, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what else is going on with you? I mean, you always have tons of stuff happening besides music. You're involved with many other things or many interesting I, facets of uh, history. Yeah, so so I think the first thing to say is, is that I'm... Real Tuesday World stops. I'm not going to stop making music, but I'm going to make music in collaboration with other people, for other people, with other people, uh, films, you know, and other artists, I hope, and, you know, contribute. So I want to carry on doing music, but not like this, you know, to sort of to do it with four other people and other other projects. Uh, partly because actually that's what I've been doing anyway for the last sort of few years and been involved, you know, writing music for films, documentaries, or other art projects. Plus, um, I've been involved in research and, you know, we, pub we published the uh, film music of Mikhail Tadavadiev, who's one of the greatest Soviet film composers of the 60s and 70s. Put those albums out, <clears throat> six, six albums now. Uh, so I produced that and put, published, we published those here. Um, Spent a lot of time in Russia researching music from the Cold War, forbidden music from the Cold War on X-ray. You know, that turned into a massive project book. Yeah. You know, got a new book coming out at the end of the year on that and live events and exhibition. You know, that's been going on for the last four or five years now. Documentaries and um, still going that project. Um, other research projects and, um, you know, most recently, like you, you know, become a bit of a broadcaster. I've got my counterculture show on Soho Radio, which is just like we're doing now is just talking to people, you know, who, who were involved in the counterculture or have got something to say about the counterculture. So, so I think, um, yeah, kind of keep on, just like you walk, I mean, you know, keep on contributing to the culture, carry on being a culture trader, doing music, you know, doing other stuff in the arts and research and telling, telling stories. I think that's what it, that's the thing it's all got in common somehow isn't it it's your yeah. telling story telling stories yeah in whatever way feels right and yeah so that's i'm going to carry on doing that of course yeah excellent so i know you got to get going in a few minutes so mm. what else anything else you want to add or plug or Oh, thanks. It's great to speak to you after all this time because we've known each other for a long time and thanks a lot for the support. And, um, you know, I think, yeah, check out this album in May. It's, it's going to be out on vinyl and cassette. Um, that's how I prefer people to listen to it, but it's going to very shortly afterwards be in the usual places. And then um, what I was really hoping is, is that for the Real Tuesday World friends, family, community, whatever you call it, which is what I've been communicating with, is that people come with us on this last sort of... Uh, 18 months, two years, because we've benefited. I mean, the reason I think they've been able to keep going, despite, you know, financial ups and downs and all that sort of stuff, is because of people's support and encouragement. Just like I said, you know, people coming up to us at the first gig and saying, we come and play in Athens or we come and play in New York. And that's carried on all the way through. And that's the reason I've carried on doing it. And um, we've also benefited hugely from like people doing fan art, you know, because from the animations that we've done, um, there's been a whole community of people out there. I think, you know, young, very young people quite often, they've sort of taken it off, taken those characters off and done fan art and sent it in and done loads of videos, comp compilations of fan art. And so I'm hoping that over the next kind of couple of years, you know, that we do more of that, more collaborations with people and um, make more films and stuff. And, you know, so make it as a, as a richer sort of farewell as possible. Excellent. Yeah, final fling. I'm Proper final fling, yeah. Then we'll have a wake. <laughs> we'll kill, like killed, <laughs> killed the real Tuesday well, then we'll have a wake. <laughs> Excellent. So May 7th, blood. May 7th of blood, yeah. Um, date for, um, I'm hoping that Dreams will be out um, before the end of the year. The only thing which is holding it back is because there's a gigantic backlog at the vinyl pressing plant because of COVID. Ah. It's, it's taking six months now to, oh, wow. to get vinyl pressed because of COVID. Well, partly because of COVID and partly because of the huge 
you know, renaissance of vinyl. So, um, but that's the plan to get it out before the end of the year. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Stephen. Oh man. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you. All right. Hope you enjoyed that. Blood is coming out May 7th and there's a bonus cassette as well. And, you know, being such a pop guy, I'm very excited about the second one, Dreams, that's coming out later this year. I've started a mailing list if you want to join. It's over at augstone.com. And on that site, too, there's also a list of all the cool independent bookshops around the world who are carrying my Nick Cave's Barn memoir. You can get it everywhere online as well, but I'm, I'm pretty psyched about all the attention it's been getting. And if you want to share this episode or subscribe to either of the podcasts, that would be very much appreciated. Reviews would be totally ace as well. And for now, I'm going to play you out with the second track from the Real Tuesday Welds Blood album coming out May 7th. This one's called Too Much Too Soon.